Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to Polcast. In this episode, we will tell you why the Polish language is perfect for talking to your lover, how being a genius pianist helped in inventing car parts, why two American girls think it's cool to be bilingual. So by now you know that the Polish language is very difficult. It's that crazy language with unpronounceable consonant clusters and so few vowels in between. It's the change brzmi w trzcinie language. But this is not the end of the challenge. There's also grammar. Polish is a highly inflected language. It has seven cases and a complex gender system. In singular and in plural, all this results in dozens of endings of nouns. Not only nouns, adjectives, numerals, which have to agree with nouns that follow them. Let's take a simple example. The noun maupa, which is a monkey. Just in singular, you will need to use it in seven different forms, depending on the context. Małpa, małpy, małpie, małpę, małpą, małpie, małpo. The same for plural. And if you want to proceed it with an adjective, that adjective will have to change its endings accordingly to agree with the noun. Duża małpa, dużej małpy. Dużej małpie, dużą małpę, dużą małpą, dużej małpie, duża małpo. But let's not despair. There is good news. Almost completely free word order. So you can put words in almost any order you want in a sentence. And no terrible articles D and A. And also something quite nice. Polish is a great language for expressing emotion. It can produce numerous diminutives, terms of endearment, of absolutely all nouns, not just proper names, but also common nouns. Let's take a noun, kot, which is cat. Kot, kotek, koteczek, koteniek, kotuleczek, kociulek, kociulaczek, kotuś, kocio. Kociątko, kocinka, kociak, kociaczek, kotunieczek. To chyba tyle. That's about it, she says. And she's just produced 13 diminutives of one noun. I can come up with, I think, two or three more. So imagine when you speak to your little son, how many words you can use in order to address him. Synku, which is my little son. Syneczku, synaczku, synusiu, synulinku, synusieńku, many, many. 
And that's the beauty of Polish. Cosmopolitan Review is a fascinating quarterly online magazine which talks about things Polish. I'm talking to author Irene Tomaszewski, its co-founder and editor-in-chief. Cosmopolitan Review originates from an extremely interesting program. Uh, that was Poland in the Rockies, 2004. Tony Muszynski, a young lawyer in, um, in Calgary, came up with the idea that he'd like to create a program of, of the sort that he would have liked when he was a student and nothing like that was available because he had felt the, um, but nowhere really could he learn anything about his own background, his own history and so on. He said, if money was not a problem, how would you design something like this? So I said, oh my goodness, this is fun. So I did. He said, okay, let's do it. And the idea was that we'd get 10 days in the Rockies with, um, you know, between 30 and 40 students from across North America. We'd get the best speakers we could find, you know, authorities on things Polish, as we called it, because it was history, it was culture, it was various things. And we had a marvelous time. We had Norman Davies, a very special historian. He always saw Poland and Poles as normal people um, who were subjected to some pretty abnormal events in history, but he really helped us put it on the map. Um, it certainly helped Tony with the fundraising. Tamara Trojanowska, who is at the University of Toronto, teaches Polish literature and uh, culture and language and theatre. You know, who you could hear a pin drop when she talked history, but we had other people too. Jagna Wright and Aneta Nishins, two uh, Polish women, but from England, who made the first film on the deportations, the Forgotten Odyssey. We also had uh, Bill Johnston, who is um, a very uh, prolific translator of Polish modern literature. Um, and Bill is originally from England. He went to Poland as a young man to teach English and mastered the language with, very quickly, I should say, because uh, he said his inspiration was that he enjoyed himself so much and he liked the young people he was meeting so much. He himself was young then that um, he just felt it was his obligation to learn to speak their language and not the other way around. Uh, we showed films. We had filmmakers. We had Krzysztof Zanussi, the uh, film director, um, and he showed a film. And he also talked about about this and um, you know about film in Poland. And the interesting thing about the course was um, the program was that it was all in English. Yes, in intentionally so, uh, because it was for people who live here, for people who don't haven't necessarily mastered. Um, Polish, or sometimes in some cases they were second or third generation and, and didn't speak it at all. Let's talk about Cosmopolitan Review because that was, this is really a child of that program. It is. The original idea actually came from a very bright um, and energetic young woman who was there, Kenya Adamczyk, um, and she got in touch with me and she said it'd be nice to have a newsletter. So we started working on that. And as we were finding content for the newsletter, 
It had actually developed into a bit of a review. It was modest at the time. Our writers were mostly students then. And uh, although Norman Davies contributed uh, an article to the very first edition, and it just took off. What is the vision, the idea? What do you, what, in what way is it special? Because it is quite unique. I think it is. Um, and Cosmopolitan eventually became into something that I would have liked to read, to have read, and I would still like to read. Because really, where do you get a review in an English language? Articles and book reviews on things Polish, because it's not covered much in English in this continent at all. Uh, if you want to read academic reviews, but then it's a very different kind of article to reading in an academic journal. You know, by now we have a great many academic re um, contributors, but they write not in the same style they would for academic journals. It's for an educated readership, uh, but not for but for a non-specialist readership. So although a lot of our contributors are specialists in either Polish history or Polish literature or something like that, the readers not necessarily are, though quite a few of them, you know, they are. And we've had many, uh, many compliments from them. Um, they have told us how that they like to recommend it to their students. Uh, one told me that for a course she gives every year uh, where she assigns a book review, the students almost always choose their books from um, from the Cosmopolitan book review lists. Why do you think reviews are particularly important and interesting? I love reading reviews. I read many of them, the New York Review of Books, the TLS, the uh, London Review, and so on. So, because, you know, who can ever read all the books that are out there in the world? But really good reviews. Uh, keep you informed. They they let you know what what's in the conversation these days. What are people talking about? Um, of course, you can go on to to buy the book and read it uh, if something really grabs you. But a well written review does give you information anyway that um, uh, you know about current current thinking, uh, what's what's being discussed, what's being taught, and so on. So um, yes, and also the other thing is that. Um, Books on Polish subjects, you'd be hard-pressed to find a review of one in the mainstream press. Publishers took notice. We get approached, would we, you know, could we do a review? But there are also other, art, just articles, not necessarily reviews of books, but other articles. But again, written by people um, who are good writers and who know their subject well. For full-length interviews, visuals, and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Gasoline is not the only Polish invention in automobile industry. Another one was invented by Joseph Hoffman. A passionate innovator with 70 registered patents, he designed his first automobile at the age of 25. And in this vehicle, he traveled across Europe. In 1909, he registered a patent for localization device, an ancestor of the GPS. His pneumatic shock absorber was used in cars and airplanes until the 1940s. There were also a furnace that burned crude oil, a house that revolved with the sun, and windscreen wipers.
He came up with the idea of windscreen wipers, thanks to the other passion of his life, his career as a pianist and composer. It was the metronome that inspired him to invent this indispensable car part. And the shape of musical notes inspired him to create a paperclip. Joseph Kazimierz Kazimir Hoffman, born in 1876 in Krakow, played music since the age of three and had his public debut concert at the age of five. A child prodigy, he became a virtuoso pianist. At the age of nine, Hoffman gave concerts in Germany, France, Holland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and Great Britain. At the age of 12, young Joseph Hoffman was probably the first pianist to record on Edison's phonograph. In 1887, being just 11 years old, he did an American tour with 50 recitals, 17 of which were at the Metropolitan Opera House. He was also famous for his extraordinary musical memory. He was said to possess the ability of Franz Liszt and Camille Saint-Saëns to hear a composition once and play it back correctly without seeing the printed notes. He gave 21 consecutive concerts in St. Petersburg without repeating a single piece, playing 255 different works from memory during that marathon cycle in 1912 to 1913. His wife describes his 1909 Russian tour when he raised his eyebrows when he saw Brahms handle variations on a program, a piece he had not played or even looked at for two and a half years. He played the piece at the concert without hesitation. Once Hoffman heard another musician play Liszt, Rollier, a piece he never heard, but went on to play it for an encore at his concert later that day. One of the most celebrated pianists of the era, called by music critics the most flawless and possibly the greatest pianist of the 20th century, he played at Carnegie Hall 151 times. He had small but exceptionally strong hands. Steinway eventually built for him a custom keyboard with slightly narrower keys. When many years after Hoffman's death, Stanway and Sons Company celebrated its anniversary in Carnegie Hall in 1988, above the stage, they posted pictures of the best pianists that played the Steinway piano. Beside the pictures of Franz Liszt, Ignacy Paderewski, Sergei Rachmaninov, Anton and Arthur Rubinstein, there was one of Hoffman. Of course, the inventor beside him came up with inventions that had to do with music. The adjustable piano stool. Nazywam się Victoria Mahoney i mam 11 lat. Hi, my name is Victoria. I'm 11 years old and I'm bilingual. Well, it means a lot to me. I feel like I'm really special because a lot of the other kids that I know just can't do it and I just feel different in a really nice way, and also because of that I'm creative and I feel like it's just good that I can go somewhere like Poland and know the language and understand everything. It's, it's really an honor. My name is Natalia, I'm 16 years old. My name is Natalia, I'm 100% bilingual, but it means a lot to me. Um, I'm able to talk to my family in Poland, which is really cool. Um, I'm able to experience more than one culture, which is also really cool. It's definitely like something my friends are kind of jealous of. Like I can like talk to them in a different language. Like I'm able to talk to my family. 
um, in Poland because I don't speak English and I wouldn't be able to if I wasn't bilingual. It's, it's really cool. Like, it's part of my identity and I know my grandma is like, really grateful that she can talk to us. Victoria and her 16-year-old sister Natalia live in Fort Collins, Colorado. Their dad, Patrick Mahoney, is American and their mother is Polish. Eliza Sarnacka Mahoney is a Polish journalist, columnist and writer who publishes on both sides of the Atlantic. She writes books on American life and politics, novels, and collections of poetry. On top of it, she is a linguist. As a mother raising two bilingual daughters, she's actively involved in the movement to promote and to popularize bilingualism in the Polish communities living outside of Poland. Her columns about bilingual home and education run in numerous Polish publications in North America. In 2015, she was behind the idea and helped establish the first Polish Bilingual Day, an annual festival celebrating bilingual education, as well as Polish culture and heritage among children of Polish immigrants. How common is bilingualism in the world? Up to uh, half of the world's population may be bilingual. Uh, there are statistics that about 20% of Americans are bilingual, and I know that in Canada it's even higher, it's about 35%. You have been extremely interested in this issue, both professionally and also personally. Yes, I have two bilingual daughters who uh, have been bilingual since birth. I have worked on it, uh, I have supported it, and I am trying to spread the word that bilingualism is good for us for a variety of reasons, not only for social and cultural reasons, but also, and research has proved it, uh, for cognitive development. Research has confirmed that there are actually uh, significant changes uh, in the brains of bilingual people, and especially bilingual children who are raised bilingually from birth. Uh, for one thing, we know that uh, the area of the brain responsible for coding the language is the left hemisphere, and uh, owing to modern technology, which is brain imaging, uh, it has been shown that actually bilingual people have a bigger density in the gray matter, uh, the area of the brain where all the processing of the information occurs. So the more of the gray matter, we know the better for us because we can say we have bigger, uh, better functioning brains. This is actual academic professional research that shows uh, there are very strong cognitive advantages with people who are bilingual. And uh, the, the most important uh, is the enhanced executive control. And that's the area of the brain that is responsible uh, for how we make decisions, how quickly we make decisions, uh, how well we perform when we have to switch from one task to another. And all of these are up, obviously translate into a uh, better academic performance, a uh, better way of thinking, quicker thinking, and more accurate thinking. Uh, bilingual people also are usually more creative. There's a special label. It says the bilingual advantage or bilingual edge, meaning that bilingual people have something that the monolinguals don't. And it's not a matter of, of sheer intelligence. And finally, I think the most, absolutely most exciting research that um, has been done recently was done by Dr. Ellen Bielestock, a world-renowned uh, researcher uh, on bilingualism. And she has proved that actually bilingual brains um, are responsible for better health, especially as we age. Bilingual people experience the onset of Alzheimer's or such diseases as just old age dementia on average five to ten years later. And, and so we can speak of 
five to ten years um, of better health that we can enjoy if we invest in bilingualism. You've done it with your own daughters. How did this process of bilingual education or, or raising your children in a bilingual way, how did you do this? I did study bilingualism uh, at, uh, when I was uh, at the university. So I had some basic information about what to do and which methods worked. Uh, best. Um, so in our house, although the language of our family is English, that's how we communicate, I chose and uh, and I remained very consistent throughout all the years of my children's life to speak to them only in Polish. And that method of raising bilingual children is called one parent, one language. So we are one parent, one language family. Uh, my husband, my uh, daughter's father speaks to them in English, uh, I speak to them in Polish, then when we're in a family situation, we use English. Although more and more often also Polish, my husband has picked up a fair amount of language over the years. Um, but I, I just, I pretty much just remained very, very consistent. Uh, of course, consistency in speaking it is not um, the only way um, to achieve it, uh, there are also other factors involved, which is seeking out very consciously opportunities for them to practice the Polish language, uh, investing in media, various media, which is films, movies, um, uh, traveling to Poland, contact with other people from the Polish community, again, um, trying to nourish relationships with other kids who speak Polish. Um, uh, we do not go to a Polish school because it is a little too far away to drive, but uh, we do try to participate in some events organized by that school from time to time. Um, I think this is a key. The children need to to feel they need to use the language uh, and they need to be interested in it. They need to have a good relationship with the language and the culture. And that is obviously up to us parents. How about your husband? How did he feel in this um, setup? That is a very big issue indeed. My husband supported the decision which we made ourselves that our children will be bilingual from the very beginning. I, I, I praise him and I thank him that he gave up so much especially in early years when his Polish was not very good and he just didn't understand and didn't participate. But he trusted me, he did research, he educated himself on bilingualism and benefits and he just totally supported us. Why did you decide to go for this experiment? The number one reason was that I wanted to make sure my children could speak to their relatives and I didn't want them to grow up in the States and not be able to talk to their grandmother or their answer uncles. The other one is, I, I don't know, like a lot of Americans, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by Europe. There's this sort of tie to what I call the old world. And I wanted to make sure that they felt like where they came from is not a strange and exotic place, but it's a place that, that they've got home and that, it, that they have ties to. It requires quite a lot of um, sacrifice on your part, right? Because there were obviously situations in which you could not participate. When they were really young, my wife would speak very simplistic Polish to them, and I almost always knew what they were talking about. Um, as they've gotten older, the conversations have gotten much more complex, and particularly my wife talking to my teenage daughter, especially when they're um, speaking very quickly. I, I often don't understand what they're saying, and so I have to say, time out, I, I need to understand what's, what you guys are talking about. I think also making sure that the children went along with it, which... You know, it's it's one thing for the two adults to, to buy into it. It's another one also for the children to, to buy into it. And so not only did I have to uh, deal with the fact that I didn't always understand what everybody was talking about, but also I had to make sure that the children understood that they needed to be speaking to their mother in Polish and to me in English. Do you know any other families that are like yours? 
I don't know anybody who's kind of been as strict as we were about it, that the children can only speak to their mother in Polish, never, ever in English. I, I know people that are trying it with younger children, but not of kind of our age group. I don't see anybody doing it quite like we do. But you you think it was worthwhile or has been? Absolutely. When I see them go to Poland and they can speak to everybody and um, they're so close to their grandmother. And I definitely without this, they would probably not know her anywhere near as well as they do. And no, I, I have no regrets. They've also, my daughter picked up French extremely quickly. I see that she's two to three years ahead of all the other students um, in picking up a, a third language. Would you do that again? Yes, I would do it again. I think the only change I would make is I would have made an even more concerted effort to learn Polish earlier on. I think I would have put, put myself into a situation where I had to speak to people, and, and that would have helped a lot with my learning. But no, I would definitely not have changed anything with regards to teaching the children. Polish is very important to me. It means a lot to me. I can communicate with my grandma, and I can also read my favorite Polish book series, which I discovered in Poland some time ago. I'm proud of it. I can go to Poland, and I just know everything, and I feel like it's like a second home. To learn more about bilingualism, about raising children bilingual, about the challenges and methods, and also the movement for bilingualism, please look at our website at mypolcast.com. In the last episode, we played this sound, wondering if you recognize it. Do you remember our story about Heinel? If you don't, you can listen to our second episode on our website, mypodcast.com. Anyway, at the bottom of that church tower in Krakow, from which the Heinau is played every hour, there is an old city square filled with tourists and colorful flower stands. A monument of Adam Mickiewicz, a famous Polish poet who never visited Krakow. And Sukiennice, arguably the world's oldest 700-year-old shopping mall still in business in the middle of Krakow's central grand square, Rynek Główny. Around the year 1300, a roof was placed over two rows of stalls to form the first Sukienice building, Cloth Hall, where the vendors sold textiles. And two other famous attractions on this busy old city square and marketplace are picturesque horse-drawn carriages and countless noisy pigeons, fully comfortable among people who love feeding them. The square is always filled with the sound of crack of pigeons. It's time for our next sound from Poland. Here it is. Listen, think, guess. Where do you need to be in Poland in order to hear this sound? And what is it?
You've been listening to the sixth episode of Polcast. Polkas is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Banikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolkas.com. In our next episode, we will tell you how an American professor remembers his three years in Poland, which included martial law, what Polish invention is commonly used in electronics, and how a Polish-Canadian jazz vocalist decided to live in Poland. And we leave you with Chopin's Minute Waltz, played by the best pianists among car inventors. (laughs) ¶¶